let's just take the, the phrase, by your fruits, you shall know them. Um, if that's true, and I think it is, then, well, the fruit is rotten. Um, and faith it, faith can't be about just believing things because we know from our own lived experience that certainty and faith are actually mutually exclusive. If you know something for certain, then absolutely no faith is required. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two. I'm your co-host, Gary Allen. And, you know, one of the joys of podcasting is getting the chance to meet some of the voices and the people that have shaped your spirituality. In fact, a recent listener uh, just asked me a couple of days ago how we picked our guest for the show. And I said, well, gosh, it's, it's mostly just individuals that Kelly and I have either read or listened to that have had a significant impact on our own spiritual journey that we then believe you would like as well. But today's guest, in a way, kind of transcends those criteria, at least for me. I don't think it's a stretch to say that our guest today is one of the main reasons why I began my own deconstruction journey about six years ago. His ideas that faith is a way of life rather than a belief system, as well as his scholarly approach to the life of the historical Jesus, to me at least was paradigm changing. It, it, it may even be the reason why I'm still a Christian today. I really believe that he set the stage for the deconstruction movement through his scholarship, his teachings and preachings. And so many of us, even without even knowing him, are, are sort of his progeny in the progressive deconstruction space. He helped me to begin the process of answering some of the biggest spiritual questions like, what is faith anyways? And who was Jesus? And what does it even mean to be a Christian if being a Christian has almost nothing to do with what you believe. He helped me unpack my relationship with Christianity and America, my relationship with Christianity and violence, with power and politics, and even economics. I just think the world of this man, and so let me finally introduce him to you. Reverend Dr. Robin Myers is Distinguished Professor of Social Justice at Oklahoma City University, and he served as Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City since 1985, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, recently retired from, from that uh, church. He's the author of seven books, the most recent being Saving God from Religion, a minister's search for faith in a skeptical age, and he currently lectures on the merits of progressive Christianity, which we're going to talk about in just a second. His books call the church to be the beloved community of resistance to injustice in our time, and he has earned a PhD from the University of Oklahoma. He's an award-winning commentator on NPR and a columnist for the Oklahoma Gazette. 
Dr. Myers has appeared on Dateline NBC and ABC World News Tonight, among many other media outlets. And in 2001, he became spiritual advisor to the first woman executed in the state of Oklahoma and is featured in an HBO documentary, The Execution of Wanda Jean. Dr. Myers, we are thrilled to have you and can't wait to have this conversation with you. Thanks. Me too. I'm looking forward to it. Let's go. Let's do it. We are so excited to talk to you because from my perspective, you are one of the first people to be an apologist for progressive Christianity, which I think we could argue was the forerunner to the deconstruction movement. And though the term may not be as cool as it was a decade ago or so, I guess I'm curious that a pastor in the conservative Bible Belt state of Oklahoma would be a leading voice for liberal progressive Christianity. How did that happen? And what led you to embrace a faith that is anything but conservative? Well, uh, Kelly, I, th- I think I came to progressive Christianity very early, probably even before it was called progressive Christianity. Hmm. Um, my, and I came to it through my father's preaching and his view of Christianity primarily as a way of life and not a set of creeds and doctrines that demand total agreement for postmortem rewards. Hmm. So that was my, that was my family inheritance. Wow. So what we call progressive Christianity in my day, not maybe you don't use that term so much anymore. I don't think it really matters what you call it. It's an, it's an approach to the whole idea of being a Jesus follower uh, and, and not just a Christ worshiper. Hmm. Uh, and I think critical thinking matters. And I think my dad used to tell all of us, I have a sister and brother as well around the table, that we should love uh, God with all our heart, soul, and he emphasized mind. That hmm. we, you couldn't be too smart to be a Christian, but being smart didn't make you one. (laughs) So as I was sort of uh, trying to think what I was going to do with my life, I was going to be an English teacher in high school. Frankly, there was an old show on TV called Room 222 with Gabe Cotter. And I thought that I was going to be that inner city English teacher somewhere in the Bronx or something, awakening the minds of students that otherwise would never care to read anything. And then at one point, I got sort of some kind of a, an impulse, a call, I think is what we call it, although that term is sometimes strangely used, that I was meant to go into the ministry, and I was engaged at the time, and uh, my wife-to-be was not so sure that she wanted to be a pastor's wife, which I don't blame her for, <laughs> but off, off we went anyway to seminary at Phillips Theological Seminary in Oklahoma. That's how I ended up here, I'd grown up in Kansas. And I thought, well, I don't mind doing what's going to be called progressive ministry in a very conservative state because it has the feeling of sort of chopping your way through the jungle for the first time with a message that sounds new to people, but is actually really very old. Mm. So that's kind of my background. And Mm. I, I never intended to sort of do anything radical. I think the radical import of Christianity is there to begin with. We just have to recognize it. Hmm. 
So I I was introduced to that radical uh, nature of Christianity through a talk you gave several years ago. It's it's on YouTube now. Uh, so listeners, if you want to go s- listen to like the best sermon you're ever going to hear in your life, um, it's I I, I, might, I might say this wrong, Robin, but the Beecher Lecture Series. And, That's right. Okay, yeah. at Yale University, and it was a, a talk you gave called "Faith as Resistance to Empire." I, I want to talk to you about that conversation, but but before that, as a part of your journey, um, you were also a part of the Jesus Seminar, were, were you not? Well, I, I was. I came along too late to be part of the actual original Jesus Seminar, but I have been a member of the organization that first gave us the Jesus Seminar. It's called the West Star Institute. Okay, um, and and the way that West Star works. It's a collection of scholars of religion who work in a particularly uh, courageous and unfettered way. They just go where the scholarship takes them. And Westar, for your listeners, um, became famous because of this first seminar they did called the Jesus Seminar. Well, I heard of it just like you do sort of later, mm-hmm. but I was never actually a part of it. But what they did was they, they sort of tried to determine what was the relative likelihood that the historical Jesus said the things that are attributed to him, that he is reported to have said in the Gospels. And the controversy came when they color-coded them. <laughs> so if the, if the sayings of Jesus were in red, the seminar was pretty certain, almost certain, that this was very likely something Jesus said or close to something he actually said. Then there was pink, which was, well, they think he probably said it, but they can't be sure. And then there was gray, which meant they doubted he ever said this, but he could have. And then there was black, which meant in their opinion, it was just their scholarly opinion, Jesus probably never said this. Hmm. And you'd be interested to know that when they produced their color-coded Bible if you will, yeah. all of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John were black. Wow. Huh. And and that's the whole I am statements, correct? Correct. So. That, that's correct. And the, the Gnostic influence and just how late John was written, most scholars think, the turn of the century, the end of the first century, maybe even the beginning of the second of the common era. Hmm. And, you know, the press got hold of this and said, how dare these these scholars try to put words into the mouth of Jesus or tell us what Jesus really said or didn't say. And that's not what they were doing. They were saying, look, there are a lot of contradictions. There are a lot of different portraits of Jesus just in the Gospels that we have, Uh, not to mention all the Gospels that never made it in, which we discovered later at Nag Hammadi, which we can talk about later. But anyway, they were trying to sort of shake the dust off some assumptions we have in the in the church that if 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 we read it in the Bible, it had to be true. It must be true. Jesus must have said it. They have good reasons to believe that the words of Jesus got altered uh, to fit the communities for which the gospel writers were doing their work. And that fascinated me. And then I ended up getting invited into the West Star uh, Institute 20 years ago. And then they've had successor seminars. One's called the Christianity Seminar. One's called the Paul Seminar. And now I'm part of a, a recent seminar called the God Seminar, out of which came the, my latest book, because I'm very interested in 
people talk about deconstruction. I'm interested in people who, who are non-theists, mm. who do not think of themselves as a theist, m- meaning they do not think of God as a person, a kind of super person mm. who's out there somewhere existing and processing prayer requests and treating, uh, his, unfortunately, his as the oft-used pronoun, his favorite people, and punishing his enemies. And, you know, sort of the, the God of Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am not a theist, and, and I've never been a theist. I think of God as a kind of deep, you know, incomprehensible mystery that animates the whole universe. And that's what I wrote that book about. But wow. that makes me an atheist, <laughs> which is also sometimes pronounced atheist, which, <laughs> which around here is, you know, it's just a really evil word because at, at one time the, the most hated woman in America was Madeleine Murray O'Hare, who, you know, sued in the Supreme Court to have compulsory prayer taken out of California public schools. And lots of religious conservatives mark that as what they be, believe was the beginning of the end of Western civilization. Because <laughs> if kids stop praying in school, then they stop believing in what was good and right. They lost their moral compass and just everything went to hell. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, of course, kids never did stop praying in school because they did that right before they took an algebra test. <laughs> right. But still, um, <laughs> this idea was very disturbing. So, um, you know, look, I would just say this about my life, which has been enormously fortunate. One, because I was born a white male in an intact family and was given every opportunity for higher education and then have been surrounded by great teachers. I am not a self-made person and none of us are. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we get over that and get over ourselves, then we can have some real good conversations about the strange thing we call Christianity and what it really is and the real and the radical person that Jesus obviously was who is now I think the most misunderstood figure in human history now as for the Beecher lectures before I wander too far off track <laughs> this is a this is one of the oldest and and really the most prestigious lectureships on religion in the United States I had heard about this since I was very young and one of my seminary professors at Phillips, Fred Craddock, is was a preaching professor, great preaching professor. And he is the only other person from Oklahoma that was ever invited to give the, they're called the Lyman Beecher Lectures on Preaching. That's hmm. the full name. So most of the people who give them are preaching professors. They're professors of homiletics. But although I've taught preaching, I decided I'd do something different. And as you've already indicated, I wanted to give three lectures on the idea of faith as resistance, because I think that's an idea we've lost. Uh, And I took ego, how do we resist ego, and just stop performing and, you know, being all about ourselves and how many, how much, how many likes we have and how popular we are and all that, because that can, that can ruin uh, authentic ministry. And then resistance to orthodoxy, the idea that there's one right way to believe and one right way to worship, because that excludes people. And whatever excludes people, whatever draws a line in the sand, I think is essentially irreligious. It's the opposite of religion. And then the third thing, as you've already mentioned, is empire. Um, 
Jesus, you know, Moses came against Pharaoh and Jesus came against Rome. So if we're going to be Jesus people, it would be our responsibility to continue that by resisting the empire in which we live, America, Mm -hmm. uh, the Pax Americana. And this is a very dangerous thing to do and a very dangerous kind of preaching to do. But I'm going to tell you, it's the most important preaching that clergy can do right now because the church has been so absorbed, as you guys know, into the dominant culture that, mm-hmm. that you don't you can't recognize a Christian as being any different from anyone else except that they're meaner, right, <laughs> they're right. more, more judgmental, and they and they break into the Capitol and try to uh, overturn the results of a legitimate election, and they do it in the name of Jesus, and they kill five people. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty, and night, and eighty-two percent of them voted for a, a, a man who probably, and this is my own opinion, uh, is an answer to the question: What would Jesus not do? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, we are in disarray. The mm-hmm. church is in. You talk about deconstruction. The church is is, is, you know, it's going away. It's dying in its old form. Mm -hmm. And some people find that very disturbing and I find it very exciting. I love that perspective. I I have so many questions for you. I feel so honored that we get to talk to you. Um, And I want to dig into a little bit more of your, your views around, um, Jesus, essentially. But before before we get there, you mentioned the Nag Hammadi, and that piqued my interest. I, I came across the Nag Hammadi through happenstance, even though I went to, to seminary. Um, and I think lots of people wouldn't, you know, even know about it or recognize it as scripture, the one yeah. could say. Yeah. But how, how, in your view, has coming across the, that type of literature um, enhanced your faith or what has been your reaction to some of those learnings? Well, we didn't really study this much in seminary, but uh, in the West Star Institute, there's been a lot of attention given to the this remarkable find of the codices and mm-hmm. Nagamati that a shepherd boy out <laughs> tending his sheep is 1948 uh, gets into this cave and finds all of these ancient manuscripts and among them something called the Gospel of Thomas, mm-hmm. which is now called the fifth gospel by people at, by many scholars, um, because it, it, it was obvious that it was written at a time that was contemporaneous with the, with the synoptic gospels. Right. And yet it's not like them at all. It has no passion narrative. Uh, it just has Jesus as the teacher. And it's a collection of uh, like 114, it was mm-hmm. 114 or 118. I'm, I, I, it's one of those. I think it's 140. <laughs> Say, they're just sayings. Mm-hmm. They're just sayings of Jesus. Like you would follow Socrates around right. with, a, with a pencil and paper and write down his wise sayings and then put them into a gospel. Mm-hmm. And so that's the gospel of Thomas. But then there were all kinds of other ones, the gospel of Mary and infancy narrative gospels. So we had like 20 other gospels or fragments of gospels that we realized were produced, some of them at the time of the of the Gospels we have, the canonical Gospels, and then some over the next 100, 150, 200 years. And none of those ever got into the Bible, of course, so it raised the question for people, well, how did we decide on the four right. Gospels that we put in? And how, how did we determine that those were the real Gospels, those were the true Gospels, and all these other Gospels were heretical? 
mm-hmm. or, or Gnostic as they, as they often call mm-hmm. them, because that was the same thing. And so that just fascinated me. And actually yeah. it, it blew up the world of biblical scholarship. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great to hear your process of encountering those and then, and then how you kind of dug deeper into that. Uh, Robin, I want to circle back to to the the previous conversation that we were having about um, people and their perception of the church and and where it's headed. I, I love that you're excited about it. Uh, I can't speak for everybody, but it seems that there is an abandonment of conservative evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it seems that people uh, that believe in Jesus maybe act nothing like him. Mm-hmm. Your version of faith isn't so much about believing things. It seems that it's, um, in fact. You've said the greatest misconception of faith is that it is a belief system. Well, I think I think that's the heart of the work I've done my whole life. I think that there's a terrible misconception that faith is a, it, that's, that faith is about some sort of certainty that you've given sort mm-hmm. of intellectual assent to these developed doctrines, most of which Jesus had nothing to say about. The, right, the church had a lot to say about as they were becoming an empire of their own. But let's just take the, the phrase, by your fruits, you shall know them. Um, if that's true, and I think it is, then, well, the fruit is rotten. Hmm. Um, yeah. And faith it, faith can't be about just believing things because we know from our own lived experience that certainty and faith are actually mutually exclusive. Absolutely. If you know something for certain, then absolutely faith. no faith is required. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when you don't know. It's when you're in the cloud of unknowing, that wonderful phrase, St. John, mm-hmm. so, that you need faith to help bridge, carry you over that unknowing into a place where you can trust that even though you don't have all the answers, you have enough instruction about how to be in the world that you can be a faithful person. And, and orthodoxy I think, as we said earlier, is the greatest heresy because it says there's only one right way to believe and every other way is wrong and all other people are wrong. Hmm. And and yet the scholarship supports that the early Jesus people, and by the way, I very seldom call myself a Christian anymore. I call myself a Jesus person or a Jesus follower. I, there's, a, there's all kinds of other names that people are going to have to come up with because Christian is really in bad shape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those those early Jesus people had no creeds at all except to say Jesus Christ was Lord, which of course we're familiar with that 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 confession now, but all it really meant and dangerously so was that Caesar was not <laughs> and 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 Rome was not amused by that. Uh, so for several hundred years, this little underground sect of Judaism, and they all continued to profess loyalty to Israel. They really did. That was a constant. But they were this kind of weird, subversive play, uh, uh, sort of gathering of people toasting Jesus, you know, at these supper clubs yeah. and and discussing uh, how they would rebuild the idea of family, not just along bloodline and marriage, but but about care for one another. They yeah. were they were gender benders in that it, there was neither male nor female, but all were one. And there were apparently there is scholarship to suggest that women had a very prominent role and that women could dress more like men if they chose in, in these communities. 
and that although it wouldn't be anything like all the progress we've made on LGBTQ plus rights, it was still radical in that time that mm-hmm. the sort of strict family model was was not required in these early Jesus communities. Mm-hmm. So interesting, and, yeah, and and so faith, I think, is is about sort of leaning into what you cannot know mm-hmm. and trusting that love has the last word, even when there's darkness and hatred everywhere, um, because. Well, what we know does not save us, because as I tell my students at the university, a knowledge is not redemptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kierkegaard said this, concept is not capacity. So how do you become a gracious person? Well, not just by reading a good book on grace, it's by acting graciously. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is the, is the real divide in the church. And we all want to be right. It's, it's very sort of intoxicating to think that we belong to the right community who believes all the right things and everyone else is wrong. That's part of human sin. But it's also irreligious to be that way. Hmm. It's, 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 it's really heresy to be that way. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. No, I, I think I that, appreciate whole, that. that concept that you just um, eloquently talked about, that faith is not a belief system, that it's a way of life. It's more about trust. For me, when when I finally was introduced to that, it, it really blew my, my brain up because mm-hmm. I, I think that growing up in evangelicalism, we were hammered into that faith had everything to do with an intellectual ascent. You have to agree mm-hmm. 100% uh, toward things like the virgin birth and the literal um, – uh, Easter story and mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of these things had everything to do with believing something. But I think it was Marcus Borg who said, you know, you can believe all the right things and still be in bondage. And, 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 we, you know, we see that in Texas today with wonderful, and, and I want to be kind to them, but wonderful Southern Baptists who truly do believe, you know, you can check the box. They believe everything about Jesus correctly. And mm-hmm. yet they're racist. They hate their neighbor. They believe in building walls. Mm-hmm. They believe in putting bounty uh, bounties on pregnant women. And right. it, right. it, it kind of reminds me of uh, a Sunday school lesson that I was in with my priest about three years ago. And we were talking about this whole notion of beliefs. And he just stopped. And this was on Sunday morning, which made it even more hilarious. But he said, beliefs are bullshit. <laughs> you know, yeah. And he said, the, what, what we need is transformation and you will yeah. never be transformed by what you believe. You will be transformed by how you live. Um, right. Right. And, and so I, I want to stop there too, but is that, I mean, are you seeing that people are gravitating toward that now or is that still yeah. anathema in many corners of, well, of I think Christianity? It's, it's, I think this is the kind of what's encroaching upon the consciousness of so many people, because in your own life experience, knowing is never enough. So you can, Mm. somebody who smokes cigarettes and we know that that's the number one preventable cause of disease because smoking cigarettes is like, tobacco is the only product that when used properly kills you. (laughs) And so you you can say to people, um, you know what's going to happen to you. If you keep doing that, you could get lung cancer and you could die. And you know what they say? I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if someone's having an affair, extramarital affair, and you say, you know, this could ruin your life. It could cost you your marriage. And you know what they say? I know. Mm. 
And, and if you say to somebody who's addicted to something, some substance or behavior and say, you know, this addiction can cost you everything. This, this could end badly. You know what they say? I know. Mm-hmm. So clearly, clearly knowledge is not redemptive. It's not enough. And there's nothing wrong with knowing. And I believe that the pursuit of knowledge is noble. But anyone that thinks that if you just get smart enough, you'll become more like Jesus is is kidding themselves. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Is, so is that is that one of the reasons why you wrote uh, your recent book, Saving Jesus from the Church? What was the motivating factor for that? I mean, you've been a pastor your entire life. Uh, feels like from uh, reading the book myself, you were walking through your own kind of deconstruction journey. Mm-hmm. What what kind of led you to that and and what was the hopeful intended outcome uh, of that that book well i live in oklahoma and so what i see around me are all of these people who claim to love jesus and then hate their neighbor mm-hmm. and i began to wonder if i could possibly even call myself that anymore i kind of came home from church one day and took a nap and had this dream that i i didn't even want to use the word uh, about myself anymore. And that was weird because I was a minister in a church. So mm-hmm. how could I not call myself a Christian? So saving Jesus from the church was just, you know, people say Jesus saves, but who's going to save Jesus <laughs> from this incredible misunderstanding uh, and misappropriation of his message? And so that book was predicated on the idea that the real message of Jesus, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. I think in, in its most pure form, has been muzzled or watered down or stripped of its radical and subversive character. Um, these early Jesus people, they just professed their loyalty to the way of Jesus. They, they not it, it didn't matter if they argued over things like the Trinity or the virgin birth or the second coming. People have always argued over those things. But in the end, that's not what it's about. So that's what Saving Jesus from the Church was about. And that's the book that has been the most successful for me. It became Mm -hmm. a national bestseller, and that opened up my life to go out and start talking to people about these things. So I feel very fortunate. For one thing, they designed an absolutely amazing cover. (laughs) If you've you've seen it, it has the the classic portrait of Jesus with duct, duct tape across his mouth. Yep. And the duct tape is a different, uh, it's a different texture so that when it catches the light, when you lay that book on your desk or something, it looks like real duct tape. Mm-hmm. And people have actually come up and tried to peel it off. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just don't think we have it right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's too important that we get it right to give up trying. Mm-hmm. Wow. I want to talk about your most recent book, Saving God from Religion. In it, you write, the most important single decision of my life came when I decided that the real question was not, what is a Christian, but how is one Christian? Why was that such a seminal moment for you? Well, because the spiritual life is praxis. It's not a dogmatic conformity, as we've been saying. I mean, we're mm-hmm. obsessed with defining Christianity all the time and trying to decide who is one and thus who isn't one, mm-hmm. instead of trying to recognize the behavior of a 
Jesus follower when we see it. So I'm surrounded in Oklahoma by people who sort of hammer away at what's a real Christian and what a real Christian believes. And then they wink at some very bad behavior Hmm. by Christians who are, well, they say imperfect, but forgiven. Hmm. So in faith as in life, my belief is that all clarity comes from the doing And absolutely no clarity comes from just the consideration of the doing. Mm. So when we recommend good things to other people, that's fine. But there'll be no understanding or transformation until we do those things. So the question is not what is a Christian, but how is one Christian? And can can you dig in a little bit to your praxis? Like in I I hear kind of a works-based do rather than be. I, and I know you're not saying that, but can you can you expand a little bit? Yeah, I, I think I am. I tend toward the works uh, righteousness side of the equation. But you okay. know, what's strange is it ne- that that division was a false dichotomy from the 100%. beginning. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. If you have faith, you would have to do good things. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing good things, it's a manifestation of your faith. So if we had never split those things apart, who knows where we would be? Yeah, less <laughs> divided, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But what, what do yeah. you mean by praxis? Well, I just mean the doing, the actual doing of the kind of, of extravagant, compassionate ministry that Jesus modeled hmm. and, and then taught and then surrendered his life for instead of, instead of yielding to, to violence himself or trying to run. I mean, it's interesting that Christians helped create an insurrection against the Capitol in the name of a person who went peacefully to his own death. Right. <laughs> he didn't kill people and yeah. peacefully to his own death and said, no, we can never, ever resort to violence and think of ourselves as, as righteous people, as mm-hmm. godly people. Mm-hmm. So um, if we're going to define Christianity, then let's, let's not have it be your position on on developed doctrine, but let it be a description of somebody who lives generously and loves wastefully, as Jack Spong put it. Mm-hmm. Thank and you. It, is that is that kind of a form of resistance? I mean, I'm you know I, I'm sitting here as a citizen of the greatest empire on the planet, um, mm-hmm. and you've referenced this in the last few minutes that the early church in many ways looked nothing like uh, we do today. We are we are the Romans sitting in his villa. They were in an underground community trying to scrape out uh, their, their very lives and existence. And then suddenly Constantine comes along and <laughs> Christians moved up from the catacombs to the, the seats of the Senate. And for the last 1700 years, we've been in this really – horrendous marriage with church and state. And gosh, we're now even seeing it with Putin and part of his invasion in the Ukraine. Um, So as citizens of an empire, I mean, I, you know, I I am who I am. We're, we're, most of our listeners are either American or Canadian or, or in the West at, in some version of empire. What does it look like to reclaim that idea of, of resistance, of, of being, as you, uh, I've heard you say, a thorn in the flesh of the empire. Yeah. How can we do that today? Because we're so damn comfortable as yeah. citizens of this, this brutally yeah. violent empire. Yeah. And it gives us all kinds of benefits. I mean, empire 
produces benefits for those who live in the empire. Yeah. Uh, if we could simply stop thinking about the people that it it oppresses and the injustice that it spreads around the world and, and all the inequity that empires create and the violence and death and destruction they create. I mean, at Yale, I said, I asked this question, what happened to the church that once gave the empire fits and now fits right in with the empire? Yeah. And if, if, if you think about that, even the church is being hypocritical when it gives uh, certain tax uh, advantages uh, to, to clergy. Now, absolutely nobody liked this particular point, but it, you know, there was a book that came out of those Beecher lectures called Spiritual Defiance, and it was published by Yale University Press. It has the lectures in them and then some additional commentary. And in that, I suggested that we do away with the housing allowance, mm. the clergy housing allowance, because it's an unfair advantage to one group of people. And I think I think we should also pay property taxes mm. on these vast churches that occupy huge parcels of real estate because we say that Jesus loved the little children, you know, brown and black and yellow and white because they're precious in his sight. But property taxes are the primary source of revenue for public schools, which we say we also support, but we really don't. And yet we take an enormous source of revenue off the table by asking that religious property be tax exempt. Mm. Now, G Gary Kelly, I can tell you that's the most unpopular suggestion I've ever made. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In my entire <laughs> life. I mean, nobody liked that and they no. let me know it. A hundred percent. At least they're honest. Right. <laughs> and, and as far as, you know, how do we resist this? Well, for one thing, What's happening in, in Ukraine is just a, a horror, an absolute horror. It's almost getting hard to watch the news mm. right mm -hmm. now. Absolutely. Let, let's not be hypocritical because uh, in 2003, the United States invaded Iraq, right. a country we did that had thing. not. Yep. It, it, we did exactly the same thing. Yep. It was just us who did it. And so our bombs looked like fireworks over the... Baghdad skyline and we thought we're liberating them and we're going to give them something better and you know they're going to greet us with flowers and candy and whatever I mean we we exercised the same self-deception uh, and we and we lied about non-existent weapons of mass destruction as the as the premise the pretext for that war and so when I hear people saying boy it's, you know we would never do this, I just start jumping up and down and say, we, we have done this many, mm -hmm. many times. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, that's how you preach it. If you want to preach it. And, and then, you know, I, I think you just work as hard as you can to find all those places where you think the empire deals death and destruction and you organize yourself to try to push back against it in some local and meaningful way. Mm. I love that. Hmm. I agree. What does it look like? And I, I hate to be that person that keeps asking practically. Like, it's so hard to get integrated into any kind of local effort to, yeah. you know, it does does kind of advocating for people. Like, how do you actually do that? Well, first of all, you get involved in local politics where where most of the change really happens. Right. 
you, you go to your school board meetings when they are they are trying to take Huckleberry Finn off the library shelf or right. say you can't teach critical race theory, which really just means don't teach anything that makes uh, my kid uncomfortable mm-hmm. because of having to confront what a what a what systemic racism really is. And you and you go to meetings where people are trying to organize to protect the rights of LGBTQ plus people and and you work uh, on on in efforts that that help to address all of the abuses of policing in our time. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to think every policeman is bad. Right. No one thinks every policeman is bad. Policemen, policemen themselves know that there are some police who are mm-hmm. very bad. Right. So, um, you know, it's just about being a citizen and a conscientious person and not sitting around saying there's really nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. The, the, the last book I wrote, Saving God from... <laughs> from religion, which they picked up from saving Jesus from the church, um, says that it doesn't matter how small a thing you do because it's like chaos theory. Chaos Mm -hmm. theory suggests that there's no variable too small to not affect complex systems. The the guy who came up with that was a meteorologist who realized that really if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, it can cause a tornado in West Texas. That's his famous Mm-hmm. wonderfully titled paper. Yeah. And what he was saying was, is we all think we have to do big things when what we really need to do every day are some good small things and trust that they will once turned loose in what Barbara Brown Taylor called the luminous web, mm-hmm. that they will change something, which will change something else, which will change something else, which will change everything. Mm-hmm. And this is really, this is why I'm interested in quantum physics now. I think that's the most exciting theological um, event in in that quantum physicists are telling us that everything really is connected to Mm -hmm. everything all the time. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And Mm. sin is separation. Paul Tillich was right about that. So Mm. we don't get to make exemptions for ourselves. We don't get to say, well, ain't it awful, but I'm too busy to to go to the school board meeting. No, doesn't work like that. So Right. And are are you hopeful that everybody's taking these little steps? Well, I'm always hopeful. Okay, great. Everybody always tells me, I mean, I get as down as anybody, but first of all, number one, pastors are ordained to, to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because for one thing, I mean, we're professionally obligated to hope, number one. But <laughs> Yes. You get a tax two, exemption to hope. Yeah, we get a tax exemption. Number two, <laughs> Uh, have you ever thought about it this way? What is the acceptable alternative to hope? I, I've never been able to come up with one. I mean, why yeah. do we get, get out of bed in the morning? Mm. Right. I, I guess I more ask, it, it seems like everything is so programmed and society is structured. So you like belong in a certain sphere. And so actually a lot of people aren't doing a little bit. Yeah, that's right. We, well, and you just have to believe that when you hold the door open for somebody, that feels like nothing. Right. But that is not nothing. Mm. Yeah. That person is likely to hold the door open for someone else. The studies prove that when good deeds are done, mm-hmm. it spreads, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. we're living in a time when you average Ukrainians, I mean, including women and men who are 60 years old, mm-hmm. are taking up arms yeah. to try to defend their country 
And we're over here arguing about critical race theory and what other, uh, other nonsense we can argue about so that we can keep everyone, you know, keep those people who are our enemies at bay and gain political power. Mm-hmm. Now we're all of a sudden confronted with the real world, the real world and what people are, are willing to do to be, to be heroes, real mm-hmm. heroes. Yeah. And I think right now, 80% of Americans said they'll pay more for gas if it helps to punish this act of aggression. 80%. You can't get 80% of Americans yeah, to, to agree, agree on anything. Yeah. On the weather. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. Weather is complicated, but yeah. 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 Yep. All right. So I've got one last uh, kind of uh, deep question for you. Um, okay. And I want to circle I want to kind of circle back to Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. I have also seen, and, and I don't think it's just me, that so many people in the deconstruction space are are very willing to leave the institutional church, but they just haven't quite given up on Jesus yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yet, the, the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels uh, tends to have been— Oh, I want to say kind of carefully crafted. You know, the the stripped down version of Jesus in Mark looks radically different than the Christos Victor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in John. So my question to you as a as a pastor, as a scholar and as a Jesus person, who is this Jesus that you follow and, and why are you still following him? <laughs> well, that's that is the question, isn't it? Um, I think probably partly because I grew up in the arms of the church and I had some feeling that this person uh, has changed human history, even though we've tried so hard to distort the original message and the original impact that he had on his followers and has had on so many people in the world. Um, I, I don't know. Jesus of Nazareth is like my hero. <laughs> so I I can't help it. I, I've tried several times to just do something else or anything else, but I just keep being drawn back to mm. this person who because because the Sermon on the Mount is the most radical manifesto ever written. And and in it there's not a word about what to believe. Mm. Not one word. There are only words about what to do and how to be in the world. This is the most shocking thing I learned in seminary. That was one of your later questions. Yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. And then 300 years later, Constantine locks all the bishops into his seaside compound and, and tells them they have to come up with a creed so everyone will know what a Christian is, what a Christian believes. And in that creed, just 300 years on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, there is not a single word about what to do mm. or how to be in the world, but only words about what to believe. And I call this the great reversal. And I think most of my life I've been trying to unreverse the great reversal to go mm. back to the future. Yeah. Mm. Wow. I love, well, I, I love I, that. I, I love that. I, I just, mm-hmm. to me, that's, that's what it is. Uh, I don't, I don't know what all this other stuff is. I, I really don't. <laughs> I, I, you know, I see people on Twitter arguing about, um, 
you know, gender equality or egalitarian or complementarian or is is the Bible inerrant or, you know, all the nonsense that Mm -hmm. basically leads to nothing. And, you know, not that those things aren't potentially important because it traces us back to what who who is God and what is the nature of God. But it sure does seem like it takes up a lot of our space to where. We just don't do anything. We can just check the box and say, yep, well, I believe all the right things and I'm good. And now I'm going to. Well, and then I'm foolish enough to believe that being a good Christian also means I'm a good American and vice versa. And, you know, that just couldn't be further from the truth. So Hmm. correct. Amundo. (laughs) I love that. Well, Ron, we said that was our last formal question, but. Do you mind if we ask you a series of rapid fire questions, just oh, sure. quick, whatever comes to mind? You okay with that? I'm I'm cool with that. All Amazing. Right. All right, here we go. First rapid fire. Um, who's your hero? Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> I mean, come Great on, answer. that's too easy. <laughs> I just said that, you guys. He, he just did, Gary Allen. He just did say that. Okay. So. Well, I okay. I need a better question then. Who's okay, your? I, I have another question for okay. you, Gary Allen. Are you ready? This can right, be your I'm, question. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, uh, Robin, you have to pick your favorite sport to watch, play, mm-hmm. and coach. They all okay. have to be a different sport. Are you asking Gary first? No, no, this is for you. Okay, I'm just yeah. I'm coming up with a better question. Yeah, she's- this is an easy this is an easy answer. I love okay, let's hear it. I love college basketball. Okay, so that's what you would play. Yes, I, I did play a little college basketball. That's what I would love to coach, but I just went. Life took me in another direction. Okay. Who's your, who's your favorite team? Oh, the University of Kansas Jayhawks. Oh, God. Ooh, fantastic. See, I, I, I couldn't sleep Saturday night. I, I, know, I, know. I know I'm dating this, um, but my favorite team's Duke. I've watched them since 1984. <laughs> they laid the colossal egg on Coach K's last game at home, and I, yeah. I couldn't sleep. I, I mean, that's yeah. uh, it's a sin. It's oh, an idolatry. Wow. You guys. Yeah. Well, I'll sign off, and you can keep talking college yeah. basketball. <laughs> There was theology in that because even though they lost, the the love for Coach K and on that program and everything was still evident even in defeat. Yeah. So there, there really was a kind of hey, you know, you can make all the best plans to have the perfect going out party for Coach K, but the other team may yeah. still win the may win the game. <laughs> right. So yep. uh, I loved it. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll I'll try to ask a unique question this time and not the one you just (laughs) answered. Um, You've talked a little bit about Oklahoma and maybe some of the challenges, but what's the best part about uh, being a Sooner? Well, there is a hybrid vitality among Okies. They're hardworking. They are some salt of the earth folk. Uh, I don't like their politics often and I don't understand their religious uh, uh, beliefs, but I've met some of the finest, most hardworking, decent people here that I've ever known anywhere. Mm. So, yeah. Love it. That's, yeah, same. My next question, what's one movie or TV show you return to over and over? Uh, Dead Poet Society. Oh, oh, yeah. So good. Fantastic. Robin Williams. Yep. Yeah. I was just having my daughter, um, I told her to watch that because she's she's so challenged right now. She's trying to uh, prepare for college and she doesn't know what to do and where to go. I'm like, just watch Dead Poet Society. It, mm-hmm. it'll, it's perfect. Um, all yeah, right. it's a beautiful movie. My, my last question, um, what are you most looking forward to post-pandemic if there ever is a post-pandemic? 
Well, I think it's going to be an endemic now. And I mm-hmm. think that it'll be like, you know, one more version of the flu and such that we have to periodically vaccinate ourselves against. I think the pandemic showed us some really sad things about our society and maybe we've learned some lessons from it. But what I like to do is to be in the communities in person and not have to wear a mask and mm-hmm. give people a hug. I, I, that is beginning to happen again. And I'm beginning to teach my students without having to wear a mask. And, you know, you, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Mm. Uh, so maybe we'll appreciate some of the simple things again. I love that. Yep. I think you're very right. Uh, last question. What's been your favorite age in life so far? Uh, this one right now. I, oh, wow. I, I have not, I have no desire to go back and be younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did that already. And um, sometimes I wish, you know, I could run and, and jump and do all the things I did when I was young. But I, I really like this moment in life more than any other moment. I just retired from wow. being a pastor of a church for 35 years, the same very liberal church called Mayflower. And I was just going to hang it up. And then this, this little group in Norman, Oklahoma, where the OU is located, the University of Oklahoma, said, we don't have a pastor. Would you come be our pastor? Hmm. And they're, they're tiny. <laughs> and I've started doing that. And I absolutely love it. I mean, Aww, it, lovely. It's just, I don't have any retirement skills, apparently. And I'm, <laughs> I'm back teaching at the university. And I love those students. So as long as I'm making sense and I have something to do, I'm going to do it. Um, I'll be 70. I turn 70 on the 20th of this month. I will be 70 years old. And if you don't think that freaks, I mean, that just freaks me out. I don't even know how that happened. (laughs) But uh, I've got three granddaughters. I got three incredible granddaughters. I got three adult children that are all married and living here in Oklahoma City. We get to see them all the time. We've got a little cabin up in the mountains of Colorado mm-hmm. uh, at Green Mountain Falls. And life is good. It's just very, very good. Mm. I Amazing. love it. That's so wonderful to hear. And by the way, Green Mountain, next time you're out here, we need to grab uh, dinner at the pantry or, or breakfast uh, because hey. it's like 15 minutes from my house. So, hey. Yeah. Hey, it's the, I know, I know you're at Monument, yeah, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, I drive by there all the time. Yep. Uh, and we spend a good part of the summer up there because it's better in the summer in Colorado than it is in Oklahoma. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Well, Robin, this has been a, a, a real treat for me personally. Mm-hmm. And I know for our listeners, thank you so much. Your, your most recent book, Saving God from Religion. A Minister's Search for Faith in a Skeptical Age is out. It's been out for a while. Mm-hmm. If they, uh-huh. if if our listeners are just kind of dying to to go to the place you would want them to go to get that, besides maybe Amazon, is is there a mm-hmm. place you would direct them? Well, I always ask people to support their local independent bookstores, even though they pay a little bit more. They get to hold a book in their hand. They get a bookmark. They get to interact with a community that loves reading and loves books. And mm-hmm. so if you don't mind paying a few bucks more, go first to your local bookstore. And if you can't find it there, then yeah, order it online. That'd be fine. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. And again, this has been a, a real treat. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for Thank just you. your wisdom and your story. And it's just been great to meet you. I really appreciate it. it. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and blessings to you and to yours. Thank Thank you. you so much, Robin. Take care. You too. 
Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.